Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We are a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. And we're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We broadcast from the Hayburn Building here in downtown Louisville. We believe a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current dysfunctional system that values profit over patients and leaves many of us in medical debt. And we're a longstanding community partner with WFMP 1065 Forward Radio. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 106.5 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. We also have all of our past shows there at forwardradio.org slash single-payer radio. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community, that means you, for your ideas and our funding. Join us, forwardradio.org. Doctors Mike Flynn and Gene Shively are back in the studio and zooming in today's guest. Mike? Yeah, this is Michael Flynn, retired U of L surgeon. Uh, let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments that I make I represent my own personal views and do not represent the views of either the University of Louisville or the surgery department. This is Eugene Shoffley. I'm a semi-retired general surgeon from Campbellsville, Kentucky. I worked at Taylor Regional Hospital. My views do not represent those of Taylor Regional Hospital nor the Department of Surgery at University of Louisville. Now, our topic today is the opioid crisis and addiction, and this is actually part two. We did a previous uh, program uh, with our guest speaker, who I will introduce, and we there were so many issues and aspects of this that we didn't get to. We decided to do another one so we could hopefully get all those issues discussed. Uh, uh, Pat Murphy is a pain and addiction specialist. He runs the May Murphy Pain Center in New Albany. Uh, went to medical school, U of L. Was a Navy flight surgeon for a while. Uh, residency in anesthesiology at U of L. Pain medicine fellowship at the Mayo Clinic, and has a master's in medical management from the University of South Carolina Marshall School of Business. Uh, Pat, uh, thank you again for your willingness to come on and talk with us about these about these issues. And as we did before, we're going to give you uh, an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like to make for as long as you'd like to make them, and then we'll begin a conversation. I would ask you, uh, I, I'm not, we don't know whether our listeners listened to the first program or not, but perhaps you could just make a kind of a brief overview of kind of where we are with the opioid situation uh, in case we've got some listeners that didn't hear that first one and then whatever other marks you'd like to make. Uh, the floor is yours. 
Well, thank you very much. And I have to cor correct you right off the bat. It's not the University of South Carolina, although that's a fine institution. <laughs> I have my degree from the University of Southern California. I'm oh, so I'm sorry. That was my fault. I was, that was uh, my, my my vision is a little bit. We're well, all USC, so but for all, those of us out there who uh, okay. are, are Trojans, and we say fight on. So <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that correction, and I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. All right, uh, it's a pleasure to be back here. Thank you so much for inviting me back for this very important topic. It's important for a number of reasons, but probably the main reason is because uh, it's a epidemic that is getting worse. In fact, last year was the worst recorded uh, year of overdose deaths ever in this country. So we're going to touch on uh, why that is the case. But uh, we have a crisis in this country. It is just getting worse. And uh, this pandemic did not make it better. And there are lessons that we've learned coming out of this that we need to apply. Hopefully people listening to this will have some resources and feel motivated to uh, participate and to uh, find some, some answers to this. I'm going to give some phone numbers out for some people. I'm going to go ahead and start with some phone numbers and give them again, because if somebody is having an issue with drugs or alcohol or even contemplating suicide or something of that nature or severe mental illness there is a uh, new national suicide prevention lifeline that's simply 988 so it's like 911 or 411 it's simply 988 and you'll get an operator that can direct you to some uh, help in that regard so remember that 988 number there's a number for uh, a mental health and um, substance abuse treatment hotline, which is 800-662-4357. That's a 24-hour hotline to get help anywhere in the country. And then uh, Kentucky has the number, which uh, is the Kentucky Opioid Assistance and Resource Hotline. It's run by the Poison Control uh, Resource in Kentucky. It's 800 Eight five four six eight one three. I'm going to give those numbers out again at the end of this uh, program as well. So uh, we have a, an issue going on here, a crisis going. On, and, uh, there are essentially three ways of going about handling it. Like any major health crisis, we have to focus on the root causes and prevention. We have to focus on treatment. And then in this case, we also have to focus on something called harm reduction, harm reduction. And I'll talk about that as well as we get into the, to, uh, what's going on here. So um, I'll, I'll leave it open to uh, the host now. If you want to ask me some questions, we can uh, go down the list here and uh, I'll, I will step off and and elaborate on some of these things as we go along. Go ahead, Jane. Uh, before we get to opioid um, addiction, I'd like to ask a some questions about alcohol addiction. You know, uh, we used to say that uh, for males, two glasses of wine, particularly red wine was good for you. And for a female, one glass of wine uh, was good for you. But I've been reading more and more articles that say that alcohol is, has more harmful effects than we 
originally thought. Now, I'd just like to hear your comments about that. Uh, is any a part of, of alcohol good for you or, or should we just be teetotalers? Well, I think it depends on the individual. Anything in uh, moderation is probably going to be okay for most people. Uh, there was a famous alchemist back in the Middle Ages who said, uh, his name was Paracelsus, and he said that any substance can be a toxin. It just depends on the dose. And that goes with oxygen, it goes with water, it goes with alcohol. So some people can take use alcohol in moderation and, and they don't have really any problem at all. And there are definite uh, health benefits to alcohol. Uh, in some respects, it can thin the blood a little bit. Uh, red wine has lots of uh, phytochemicals that are beneficial to the cardiovascular system sometimes. And, you know, there's, you know, off and on, you'll see reports that studies have shown that they help with various other conditions. Uh, even diabetes, for example. But generally, you think of what alcohol is, it is a very simple sugar. So anybody who is putting a simple sugar into their system in large doses is going to have a problem with, uh, you know, with diabetes or, or things of that nature, it's going to be damaging to the cardiovascular system. Also, uh, alcohol is an addictive substance is reinforcing it, it is addictive. It's not as addictive as some of the other things we'll talk about like heroin for example or fentanyl or methamphetamine but it's definitely addictive so when the, a, a large population a large number of people use alcohol you're going to have a large number of people that have problems with it so you know is it something that uh as humans i'd like to see go away you know i i think they're you know it, humans have to make their own decisions about things Clearly, there are some people that should never drink a drop. They may have, uh, it may run in their families. They just may be predisposed to uh, developing alcoholism and they should just avoid it completely. Others can, you know, can partake and, and not worry about it too much. So it really depends upon the individual. And we're going to talk about some of those factors when I talk about what are the risk factors of opioid addiction, which we need to get into. Uh, people often say, you know, am I at risk? Am I somebody that shouldn't uh, you know, partake in alcohol or marijuana or certainly, you know, opioids? If I get a pain medicine from my surgeon postoperatively, am I at risk? So I'm going to help answer some of those questions, I hope, as we go on. And that those same factors would also apply to somebody thinking about whether or not they should, you know, drink alcohol. Well, let's take that a step further uh, the, with, with the, the issue of who's who's uh, at risk. Um, how about the genetics of addiction? Could you make some comments about that? I uh, I listened to a couple of podcasts uh, in, in anticipation of this program so I could ask intelligent questions. And there are a couple of those. The, the issue of genetics came up on on more than one occasion. So and, and as, I guess it relates to that, the, the you know, the, the opioid addiction issue, as well as the alcohol issue and whatever other addiction issues are out there. Well, there are definitely genetic factors. We don't know exactly uh, what the gene is or 
how to identify it or how to find somebody at risk. But the rule the rule is that if you have a first degree relative, and that would be your father, mother, sister, brother, something like that, your ch your child even a first degree relative that has a problem with drugs or alcohol, then your risk is higher because of that. Beyond the first degree relatives, it may not be as big an issue, but clearly there is a genetic component. And a lot of experts believe that the genetic component is as much as 50% of your risk. So I tell you, a lot of families have this in their family. And if you have a close relative that has a problem with drugs or alcohol, you really should be careful about partaking of, of any substance that might be addictive or reinforcing because you risk. So it is a strong genetic component. When we look at the risks of somebody developing an addiction, it's, it's really nice to first understand what is addiction? Because addiction is not just a habit. Addiction is not just a choice that people make sometimes. It may start out as a choice, but addiction is actually a disease of the brain. There's a part of the brain called the, we can call it a number of things, but it's sometimes referred to as the reward system of the brain. And there are structures in there, ones called the amygdala. There are areas of the brain that deal with modifying behaviors. And a lot of it has to do with pleasure. A lot of it has to do with with uh, with teaching or having the this, the creature, the human, uh, go about doing things that's going to be pleasurable because it's good for the human. For example, it's the same area of the brain that 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 love is the feeling of love is is found in uh, when uh, when uh, when you're hugged by your mother and you feel good about this there's there's a or you, you see a friend or you fall in love and in, in uh, as a young person or you meet your your soulmate that that joy of seeing somebody that exhilaration that happiness is that part of the brain well in certain individuals and with certain substances that part of the brain gets hijacked by the drug for example somebody might take an opioid and you know not feel anything from it yeah you know, it's my pain gets better or whatever but another person susceptible could take the same opioid and just say hey i like that i feel good about that and then what happens is that reward system in their brain is mistaking that opioid for really what it, it should be doing in, in, in terms of, you know, a, a, a pleasurable experience that actually helps the, the person. But the opioid or alcohol or, or pornography or gambling or whatever it might be, that's, that is thing that is causing the addiction is now going off the rails so that it's, it's, a, it's an excessive high or pleasurable experience that then in a sense, can even damage that part of the brain so that after the substance is not there, you don't go back to normal. You don't go back to baseline. It's damaged. So you don't feel like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not in love. No, you feel like you're worthless. There's a sense of loss of your soul. There's people describe it several different ways, but it's a really uh, uh, low, miserable painful uh, position to be in. And then they seek that substance again to kind of at least fill in that gap or to, to 
uh, help uh, with uh, treat in a sense self treat that that terrible feeling. So, so are these are these addiction um, genetic addiction risks are they specific in the sense that it would be opioids or alcohol or methamphetamines or is it a more generalized thing to all or any of those substances that that kind of cause that pleasure sensation? Well, it depends on the individual. And uh, certain individuals are more susceptible to certain situations or certain substances. And certain substances are more addictive than others. And uh, so when I when I discuss the risks, we think about the factors that are associated with the person themselves, and we mentioned genetics already, then there are factors associated with the the substance that's being abused. And then there's societal factors. So I mentioned genetics, the other factors associated with the individual would be the environment, uh, the, the persons, the places, the things around the individual, the peer pressure, the availability of substances amongst the peers. That's very important. So if, if you're in an environment where this is going on, you're at risk, not beyond your genetics, you're at risk for developing an addiction. Uh, that kind of makes common sense to people when they think about it. Also, mental health is important. Uh, people that are suffering from depression or bipolar disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, they are more susceptible to developing an addiction because they get maybe temporary benefit from the substances, but those substances don't necessarily treat the, the condition. A big example of this is marijuana. So many people say, well, I have anxiety, so I, I use marijuana and marijuana helps me with my anxiety. And what I would say is probably not. Probably what's happening is that temporarily uh, the marijuana is covering some of the areas that maybe you know, makes you feel like you're anxious, but then when the marijuana leaves your system, you have a rebound and the anxiety can be even worse, for example. In other words, marijuana gives a sense of maybe I'm treating anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's no, there's no medical evidence that it, it actually does that. And then the uh, other uh, condition would be like uh, a medical condition. Uh, if you if you have chronic pain, for example, and uh, you know you, you overuse the medica medications, you're predisposed to developing a problem with that. So that's, those are the patient-related factors. And then there are drug-related factors. This is very important because some drugs are definitely more addictive than others. And think about the drugs that, that have a, a, a big high associated with them or they get into your brain quickly. Cocaine, for example, very addictive. Uh, heroin, methamphetamine. They tend to be more addictive than drugs that get into your system more slowly, like alcohol or, or marijuana. So there is a there is a, uh, uh, a kind of a scale of, of the type of drugs that actually are more addictive. To say that marijuana is not addictive is untrue. Marijuana is about is about as addictive as alcohol, but certainly cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine. Uh, tend to be very much more addictive uh, because they get into the system quickly and they cause a tremendous release of dopamine from those structures in that reward system we talked about. Then also the method of use. Uh, when drugs are snorted or they're inject injected into your body, 
they are much more likely to get to the brain quicker and cause that high and then they're more addictive. So that's the, the method of uh, taking the, the drug is important. Drugs that are swallowed or something of that nature are, are going to be a, a little less addictive. And then finally, uh, we mentioned the patient factors, the drug factors, societal factors, societal factors. The, uh, this, this opioid crisis, this, this overdose crisis we had really began back in the 70s. And uh, it's, if you look at the trajectory, it's just kind of been going on since then. But in, in the 70s is when we had a real political upheaval. We had some, a real uh, beginning of the, uh, of the manufacturing base leaving the, the urban area and uh, jobs were, were changing. Uh, we had an economic downturn and people turned to cocaine and crack cocaine, things like that. And so you started having this uptick in, in, uh, in uh, addiction and problems and overdoses starting about then. It's continued and it's been uh, associated with every time there's been a, a real major downturn in uh, our economy or despair or, or things that cause anxiety amongst the populations, you have an uptick in addiction and overdoses as well. And an example of this is, is clearly what's happened with this pandemic. Over the past two years, we've had a tremendous increase in uh, overdoses and addictive issues because of the despair and the hopelessness and the anxiety that's in our, uh, in our society. So this, there are societal factors as well. So understanding those factors, patient factors, drug factors, societal factors give us a little bit of a roadmap into how we can go about solving this problem too well if how are we as clinicians to when we're examining and seeing the patient in the office for the first time let's say we're scheduling a patient for an operation what should we look for in this patient what kind of history should we take to try to avoid uh, getting into opioid and alcohol and marijuana addiction? Well, I think the very first thing you ask them is simply, have you ever had a problem with drugs or alcohol? Just simp that simple question. People will be kind of honest with you if you ask them directly. Uh, just simply, have you ever had a problem with drugs or alcohol? And especially in the past year, and then ask, you know, do you have a close family member that has a problem with, drug, problem with drugs or alcohol? And then, uh, I mean, as a, if you're going to you know, be doing surgery, then have a frank discussion with them about post-operative pain. Well, what sort of things might I use for post-operative pain? Can we avoid using opioids? If we do, can we use them in just small amounts? And, you know, I'll be there for you and I'll follow up with you closely. Uh, but I'm, I may not give you two weeks of medication, uh, when generally three days is all you need. And uh, then you have a discussion with somebody about, okay, when we're done with this and you haven't used all your medicines, maybe it's good that you get rid of them. Maybe take them back to the uh, police. They have, they have medication take backs. You can also, now the environmentalists won't like this out here, but you can flush those medicines down the toilet, the leftover ones. 
uh, it's actually from a risk benefit standpoint, it's safer for our society if we would flush away the leftover medicines. That's not just my opinion. That's the opinion of the federal government. So I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. But, but honestly, uh, it, most of the meds that are, the most of the pills that are abused in this country uh, are not from a prescription from a doctor to the patient. They're from they're from leftovers, family and friends or, or acquaintances give them the medications. And that's really because of all of the leftover pills. Yeah, so, now, could I throw those out in the yard and maybe the squirrels will eat them and stop <laughs> trying to dig holes in my roof? <laughs> you, you might have some, uh, you might uh, make the problem worse if you do that. <laughs> Left some, uh, some uh, addicted squirrels, which would be a problem. Well, listen, one of the issues that uh, after you, the last program we did with you that you indicated you wanted to get into that for, as a topic, but we didn't have time to get to it was harm reduction. I've got that down here on my list with a with a mark by it. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because as I remember correctly, when we talked about uh, those issues after the last program, you were a little disappointed you didn't have time to get that in. Oh, thank you. Uh, harm reduction is really misunderstood in this country. Uh, basically, what it is is when it's when you you have somebody who is already got a condition, and in this case, we're talking about somebody who is using drugs, and uh, it's not healthy for them. They're either addicted or they're using it. They're not going to stop right now, but you don't want them to get sicker. You want to keep them alive so that they that when the time comes that you can treat them, they don't have HIV, uh, maybe you've avoided hepatitis and, uh, you know, they, they don't have other infections as well, uh, or they're just frankly, they're just alive. So um, at, it's it's harm reduction is to keep it's it's medical treatment. It's not facilitating somebody's addiction. It's keeping somebody alive and safe and well it's respecting people as as humans people that use drugs people that are addicted they have self-worth they are every bit as important and they're every bit as much a patient as anybody else and they deserve compassion and they deserve treatment and they can get better that's how harm reduction is the the, the statistics are so um in favor of harm reduction that get, gets people eventually into treatment and uh, pr you know promotes the long longevity in their lives it's uh, so much so beneficial so one example of harm reduction is naloxone and it's uh, naloxone is also called narcan it's the antidote for opioids it re completely reverses the effects of an opioid. So if somebody has overdosed and they're not breathing, you can give them Narcan and it's usually either up the nose or through an injection and in the muscle. And it, re it reverses the opioid and they, within seconds, they're awake and they're alive again and they're breathing. So Narcan is, should be, it should be in all the malls. It should be in all the schools. It should be in all the bathrooms in every department store, uh, anywhere somebody might go and use, and you would find them. You should be able to, you know, people should have Narcan with them. We, we could save so many lives if we just had widespread Narcan. And, and I tell you, you don't need a prescription 
to get Narcan. You can call the Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition, and that number is 502-537-6010. You can Google them online, kyhrc.org, the Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition. You can also go to pretty much any pharmacy. Just tell the pharmacist that you would like Narcan. You have to fill out a couple forms and you think you can get Narcan from the pharmacy. So you don't need uh, because they, they have a standing order usually with a with a physician, but you don't need to see your own physician. So if you want to have Narcan in your possession, which I highly recommend it, anybody, uh, then call the K KHRC or go to a pharmacy and get it. But it will it will completely reverse an opioid overdose. So that's one thing. Another form of harm reduction would be would be a clean needle exchange. And you know that's not facilitating people that use. They're going to use anyway. But a lot of people don't realize that by sharing needles, they, they can share HIV, they can share hepatitis and other infections as well. So just giving them some clean needles where they exchange they exchange their needles for clean needles because they're going to use anyway. And then at that point, you know, if they're coming in, you can maybe talk to them about resources or other forms of treatment. And maybe when they're ready, they will get themselves into treatment. And I tell you what, people they use, I mean, almost 99.9%, .9%, they don't want to use. It's the, the compulsion is so powerful to use that, um, you know, they put, you know, the, the need for that. And as I mentioned, addiction is, is such a low place in the soul. It's such a, a terrible feeling that, uh, you know, they will, they will put themselves at risk and they know they're putting themselves at risk to, uh, to use. But uh, at some point, you know, you might catch them where they're at the right time and you can get them into treatment. So, uh, the other thing with harm reduction we do a lot is that uh, we test them. We test them for HIV. We test them for uh, hepatitis. We don't want them. We want them to get treatment if they have it. We want to keep them alive. We don't want them to spread it to other people. So that's harm reduction in a nutshell. And uh, and if anybody wants to participate, the Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition would love to have volunteers. We take donations. I'm on the board and. Uh, you know, it's just it's it's a it's something that uh, needs to be mainstream and um, understood. So if anybody wants to learn more about it, uh, go online, Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition dot org or call 502-537-6061. Uh, Pat, let's <clears throat> talk a little bit about fentanyl. Now, it's my understanding that 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 there that adolescent or youth um over overdose opioid overdoses have got a lot to do with with the addition of fentanyl to the street drugs and i was again i was listening to one of these podcasts so that i could ask an intelligent question and what i learned was this stuff is made this is this is a it's not natural it's a it's it's made chemically it was made chemically in china it gets sent to the cartels in Mexico, and then that gets into this country, and it gets mixed with the street drugs, and it's literally hundreds of times more addictive and more dangerous 
than the opioids or heroin and the very small amount that gets into the street drug that this kid is experimenting with is one of the reasons why the death rates are, are in, in adolescence and, and young people is so high, which I, I guess is also related to the, uh, the pandemic. So can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the fentanyl issue and how that fits into this equation? Yes, and I think you're right on the money there with what you said. Uh, remember, I talked about that uh, alchemist uh, from the Middle Ages who said that any substance can be a poison. It just depends on the dose. Well, this applies directly to fentanyl. Fentanyl is extremely potent. It is uh, about 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, actually. It's also uh, gets into the brain very quickly. It's a very fat soluble drug. So it acts very quickly and very, very potent. Therefore, as you can imagine, it has a lot of use in surgery. Uh, most surgeries uh, that I was involved in, in you know, my residency and then when, when I was doing anesthesia, we would use fentanyl during the surgery because it would act very quickly. And if, so, if I could see if somebody was asleep having their surgery, and their heart rate went up, I could tell, well, this is hurting them. They may not be awake, but this is causing uh, pain to them, even subconsciously. You give them fentanyl and very quickly, the heart rate would come down, they would calm down, and then it would be a very beneficial thing for the patient in the proper dose. Now, what's happening is this fentanyl that is coming across the borders and getting into the drug supply here is not the same fentanyl that we use in the hospitals. It technically is, but it, it comes across in a impure form or a, a, a form where they don't know exactly how much is in it. They put it into pills because it's relatively cheap to manufacture and it can make the pills, the counterfeit pills seem more potent. But, uh, it, but, but if you don't know what you're getting, if you're taking a fent fentanyl, you think you're taking something else, you take fentanyl, it could be extremely potent, too much, and then you, you die by, uh, by uh, in a sense, accident, because you don't, you don't know you're taking fentanyl. And I'll tell you what, it's such a problem that fentanyl is actually the number one killer in overdoses in this country now. Uh, for example, I said there was a record number of Americans died last year from drug overdoses. Over 107,000 Americans died last year. I mean, that's many more than died in the entire Vietnam War. So just last year, you know, we had like one and a half Vietnam Wars in terms of casualties last year, just in overdoses. And of those um, deaths, 93,000 or more were related to fentanyl. So my gosh, fentanyl we have a fentanyl crisis in this country and uh by comparison um there are other drugs that are associated with you know overdose deaths as well the uh uh methamphetamine was implicated in only thirty-two thousand, which is a lot and cocaine in twenty-four thousand plus about 20 almost twenty-five thousand. so compared to that uh, fentanyl was involved in over seventy thousand deaths. So it really is a, a major problem. 
one of the issues that we have is that uh, believe it or not it's technically illegal in a lot of states and i believe it's illegal in kentucky that to to uh, have fentanyl strips or a testing uh, mechanism so people can test their drugs to see if there's fentanyl in there now again that falls into the harm reduction sort of uh, capability but if we were to able to distribute they call them fentanyl testing strips and if people that were using could test their drug supply and see if there's fentanyl laced into their drug supply then we'd have fewer overdoses we know that you see on it seems like you're facilitating them but you're not you're keeping them alive and not dying because somebody you definitely cannot save somebody who's dead you can save some only save somebody who's alive and for those of people listening who may be you know i don't know thinking in who are these people that that are abusing the drugs and are on the streets i've been out there i've been at the sites we've you know giving out the narcan and talking to people and through the university of louisville we're even doing some treatment with buprenorphine patients that want to get started on medicines to get them off of these drugs. They're, they're people that come from all walks of life. They've, they're our, our sisters and brothers and our sons and daughters. They're people that uh, have this disease of addiction. And for whatever reason, those risk factors I mentioned, they've gotten involved in it and it's a disease and they cannot they cannot treat this disease on their own. So we need to help them, we need to be there for them. But the fentanyl is, is horrible. And it does come uh, from out of the country mostly and does come from the border in Mexico for the most part. Let me just ask some questions about how, how can we prevent some of these problems? Right now, um, if you get arrested with one of these drugs, you go to jail and and then you get released and you start back on drugs. The legislature is dealing uh, uh, with medical marijuana. Colleges are dealing with uh, drugs and binge drinking. Uh, should the legislature pass laws to uh, medical marijuana? Should colleges uh, prohibit binge drinking? And what should the legislature try to do about uh, the tremendous use of uh, of drugs in our country. Well, for one, we have to look at the issue as an epidemic, as a medical issue, not a, not a moral or a criminal issue. And when you when you when you take uh, somebody who is using meds, using uh, drugs, and you dehumanize them, if you call them a criminal, if you um, you know, place them into that category, it's easy to, to not give them treatment. We have to see it as a true medical condition for which there is treatment and we have to provide treatment. That means also we have to, in a sense, decriminalize the use of drugs for, in a large, to a, to, a, to a degree. And by that, I don't mean make it free or just, or just legal and everybody can have it, but, but but you know, maybe the penalties should not be jail time, and maybe the penalty should be you must go to rehab or you must go to some counseling or just there's treatment involved 
when when somebody does get arrested or does get a, a problem with the the drugs, the uh, there is, so it has to be a, de a decriminalization. As far as medical marijuana goes, um, medical marijuana is uh, really not a thing that in medicine we talk about. I mean, some people say yeah, it's medicine or whatever, but uh, medicine is actually something that we know what's in it. It's like a you know think about think about an, a pill or something that we use. I mentioned fentanyl earlier in the operating room. It's something we know what it is. Marijuana is a smoked eaten product it's it's almost it's an it's it's kind of like a uh, an herb or in a, in a sense it's not it hasn't been studied well enough we don't know exactly what's in marijuana when you use it it does have some medicinal benefits there's no question that the cannabinoids in marijuana have medicinal benefits and the problem is marijuana is still a schedule one drug marijuana is considered in the same category as heroin in this country. So we can't even study it in the medical schools. We can't even, you know, you, you can't, you do things like that because it's a schedule one drug. We have to, we have to take it out of that schedule one category, uh, in a sense, decriminalize it, be able to study it and then find the, the proper benefits and the proper use of marijuana because marijuana does have some benefits, but it also has a lot of harms. I mentioned some earlier. It can worsen anxiety. It can cause a, it can cause addiction. It uh, it can um, uh, cause a, a, a worsen PTSD as opposed to treating it. Some people think it treats it. It can cause hallucinations, for example, and paranoia. There is lots of issues with marijuana as well. But uh, we have to look at we have to look at this not as a criminal issue as a public health issue if we can get together the medical community the legal community the, the the policymakers if we can get together and view this as a public health crisis and not a, a criminalization crisis or a legal crisis then i think then we can then move in the right direction working together uh, Pat, how much uh, so aside from decriminalizing the addiction issue how much of a factor is the stigma of addiction an issue in getting uh, someone who's got this problem into treatment and, and having them stay in treatment? It's a stigma is a major barrier to care. There's so much shame that's associated with this, and uh, there really should not be. If somebody has suffers from addiction the disease of addiction they should have be given the same compassion as somebody who's overcoming cancer or whatever honestly they they really do i mean think about it uh the the the, the fair at the uh, derby they had a wonderful parade i guess on uh, oaks day where everybody who had, had dealt with breast cancer or, or something of that nature i forget exactly what what it was to, to be there but you have you're you're glorified you're 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 a hero you're and they should be that's a wonderful thing but yet when you're dealing with addiction which is also a life threatening illness you're shamed you're in the shadows and there's no parades for you there's no there's no ribbons that you wear to talk about how brave you are to, you're fighting this this problem you're you're ashamed of it and uh doctors are afraid to treat you and people are afraid to, uh, to hire you 
with this. And it's sad because we have treatments for addiction that, especially opioid addiction, that are very effective. We call it uh, MOUD, uh, Medications for Opioid Use Disorder. And that's buprenorphine or suboxone, and then methadone. Methadone, and there's one more called the extended release naloxone. Uh, people may have heard of Vivitrol injections, but they're, but naloxone again is that antidote. Now naloxone is, the injections are helpful, but the real strong and the real powerful medications for opioid use disorder are buprenorphine, which is suboxone and methadone. And the reason why they're necessary is because, as I mentioned before, there is a disease process in the brain and those receptors in that reward center have been damaged. And when there's not something there occupying those receptors, then there's that preoccupation, that, that uncomfortable feeling. It could be withdrawal symptoms. It could be just that, that sense of I've lost myself, that despair. And it's because there's nothing occupying those damaged receptors in the brain. Well, you give somebody buprenorphine, you give them methadone appropriately in the right dosages, then you have some coverage of those receptors and those feelings are lessened and they, they think more clearly. There's less compulsion to use. They, they stay in treatment. Then they get the other treatments that are necessary. For example, they're more likely to come to psychiatric therapy or 12-step programs, or we call those uh, the behavioral modification, which along with the medications are very effective. I can tell you that people that are engaged in using buprenorphine or methadone, they are 50% less likely to die of their opioid use disorder. I mean, can we think of many other treatments that you can give somebody and that they're 50% less likely to die? But yet no one talks about how, how, how mainstream it should be. We have, to, in order to prescribe methadone, you must go to a methadone clinic, but doctors can prescribe buprenorphine out of their office. It's quite simple. They get a, they take a, a little extra course. They get an extra certification from the, from the, the federal government, the DEA to do this. Then they can prescribe suboxone to patients out of their office. And if more doctors would do this, and we don't have, we don't have nearly enough that are doing this. If more doctors would just say, yeah, I'm going to do this and maybe take on five patients or maybe 10 patients or even one patient, then we would make a huge difference in this country. I, so, I really want to ask, address that issue of why more doctors are not using uh, uh, the suboxone. Uh, it, it's been my personal experience uh, that a lot of doctors have quit uh, prescribing narcotics uh, in general because they don't want to have to deal with the problems of uh, drug addicts. And then I know of uh, three physicians who essentially uh, have retired or gotten into trouble with the medical licensures board because they were not properly uh, following the regulations of the uh, medical board for using Suboxone. How can we get around that and how can we uh, better treat these patients? 
Well, as much as I love Kentucky, uh, our buprenorphine regulations are very cumbersome. You know, uh, I, I'm also practicing in Indiana. Indiana doesn't have a buprenorphine regulation or anything like Kentucky has. Kentucky is, is on the medical board website. It's kind of complicated to follow. Uh, but uh, by the way, is a little, uh, if I could do a plug for this, I'm going to uh, be working with the Kentucky um, Society of Addiction Medicine to put together a, a brief CME program, an education program about the Kentucky regulations. And that'll be on the Kentucky board website soon. So certainly by the time of the, K, the Kentucky Medical Association Convention uh, in the fall, there will be a, uh, we plan on having a CME, a brief CME to help guide doctors through these regulations that will be hopefully, it'll be on the KMA website. It will be on, should be on the Kentucky Board of Medical Licensure website as well. But one of the problems is it's misunderstood. In Kentucky, you're really not allowed to use Suboxone off-label for pain. And buprenorphine is actually a pretty good pain drug. It actually really is a good pain drug. But uh, Kentucky, again, like some states, is a little, is a little behind, the, behind the curve on this. So we, we are trying, by say we, you know, organization, organizations like the Kentucky Society of Addiction Medicine, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, we're trying to work with medical boards to make their regulations a, a bit more easy to follow and a bit more less cumbersome for doctors because uh, the doctors do not want to lose their licenses. They don't, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to uh, get in trouble with the medical boards that can really damage your career and everything you've worked for. So that is a big barrier that we're working on. So I think that's one of the reasons. It's also a little bit misunderstood because a lot of people think that by giving somebody Suboxone that you're just replacing one addiction with another. And as I said earlier, it's it's not that at all. You, you are not getting the patient addicted to Suboxone. They are treating their opioid use disorder. They're treating the damage with this medication and allowing them then to think more clearly and to get into other treatments that might benefit them. It's just like any other medicine you would use for a medical condition. Once we start viewing it in that context, which we will eventually, because that's what it is. Eventually, we will get there where doctors see this as treatment, just like an antibiotic would be a treatment, just like uh, diabetes medicine is a treatment, just like blood pressure is treated. We will treat opioid use disorder with these medications in this same way. We're getting there. Programs like this, where we get the word out, we talk about this, is a, is a step in the right direction. But you're right, that stigma and that misunderstanding of what Suboxone is, for example, is another reason why, uh, another barrier to people getting care. Let me talk to you about two other treatments. What about drugs that are mixed with Narcan? I've recently seen patients who are on those drugs. And then what about, what is the future with monoclonal antibodies with drug addiction? Okay, uh, first of all, the, I don't, I'm not sure of what drugs you're speaking of that are mixed with Narcan. The one that, uh, there was one out a while back that was an opioid, it was morphine that had some Narcan in it. And the idea was that if somebody were to inject it or crush it, then they wouldn't get as, the Narcan would then be released and they wouldn't get as, a high, as much of a high from it. Uh, that has not really been borne out to be proven. So really there's no, 
there's no perfect drug out there that you can use that's got the Narcan in it. It's going to be basically make it safe. It might be a good idea, maybe not. So that's there's no drugs out there like that 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 I know of that uh, uh, are going to be you know safe. And then the monoclonal antibodies, I, I, I know a little bit about that, but not a whole lot. I haven't heard that that's taken off or that we found that that's going to be a, a major treatment. There's some research on that, I, I, I believe. But again, uh, I haven't heard anything uh, encouraging about that. We're, back, we're getting to the, down to the last five minutes. So let me just go us in a little direction, a different direction. And then uh, if you wanted to you wanted to make some final comments and then give out some phone numbers, uh, what are your thoughts about? And again, we're, we're running short on time here. The uh, Purdue Pharma Sackley, Sackler family, a six billion dollar settlement with no liability, no acceptance of any kind of uh, uh, blame or for you know, their activities in providing these. Uh, addictive substances, which they told everybody they weren't addictive. So let me get your thoughts about that. And, and we're, like I said, we're getting to the end here. Okay. I have a brief thought about that. That's a legal issue. I wasn't involved in that. I didn't sit in for all of that. I have no idea if they made a good decision or a bad decision. I mean, maybe the, maybe the courts were right about this. Who knows? I do know that there's a lot of money out there now that's going to the States and that money does not need to go to roads. It does not need to go to uh, other things. That money needs to go to treating addiction. And please, if anybody's listening to this as a legislator, that money is there because of, a, of something that was done to our, to our population with this addiction, addiction crisis. The money needs to go to treat addiction and not some other some other uh so let, let's let let you make some whatever final comments you'd like to make and i think you wanted to you indicated you wanted to uh, give out some phone numbers again and then i think mark is going to wrap this up okay i want to say first of all thank you for having me here and uh, i hope that i haven't talked too fast but uh there's a um, there is an answer to this and the answer is all of us coming together and working this uh, and i just said uh, we need to work from a public health perspective, not a criminal criminal perspective with the opioid crisis. We need to uh, decriminalize uh, the uh, drug, you know, the fentanyl strips, things of that nature. We need to ensure that these funds, these litigation funds go to public health purposes and not to other purposes. Um, we need to uh, uh, make, make uh, these treatments available to people and we need to also embrace harm reduction. Having said that, uh, I want to say that the uh, the numbers that if anybody's out there is uh, in dire straits or the need a suicide prevention lifeline, it is nine eight eight. Tell it to your friends. Everybody, let everybody know that the number for suicide prevention is nine eight eight. The uh, mental health referral line is 800-662-4383. Five, seven. That's 24 hours. They can find you help mental health. They can also uh, help you with crises. They can also help you find addiction treatment. 800-662-4357. And finally, if you want to get Narcan or you want to get involved in harm reduction or learn more about it, please go to kyhrc.org. 
the Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition. Their, their number is 502-537-6061. Well, Pat, thank you again. You are an excellent guest speaker. This is a really good discussion. And uh, Mark, it's, it's all yours. Thanks again, Doc. Reminder that Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare is joining with other grassroots organizations to celebrate and protect our Medicare program. And Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare is providing free transportation, that's ground transportation, to a rally in Washington, D.C. that's on Saturday, July 30th. We'll be leaving the 29th, Friday, that Friday night. You can learn more and reserve your spot. Reach out to Kay Tillo. Kay is our chairperson. And Kay's email address is nursenpo at aol.com. More information is available at kyhealthcare.org. Harriet Seiler and Kay keep folks up to date with our webpage, Facebook, and Twitter accounts as well. Join us, and thanks for listening. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. Well, Pat, <laughs> what were all those sirens going on? Were they you in the middle of... <laughs>